Well, let's pray, and I want to open up God's Word. So let's ask the Lord to meet us. Thank you for your Word, which is a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path. Without it, we would be stumbling around in darkness. But with it, the light shines the path ahead so we can move ahead with clarity and confidence. So do that, I pray for each of us. Let your light shine upon our lives that we could see more clearly who you are, where we are, and how you want us to live. For Jesus' sake, amen. So today is my last Sunday as as pastor of Mercy Hill. We're going to go plant a church in Abu Dhabi. So, what I want to do today is share with you why we would be willing to move away from our kids, Anna and Brad, who we love, why we'd be willing to move away from our parents, who are in their 80s, who we love, and willing to move away from you, Mercy Hill Church, who we love. Why would we be willing to do that, go plant a church halfway around the world? The answer, at least one place in the Bible where the answer is found, is Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. So let's go ahead and turn there. Romans 1, 14 and 15. And if you need a Bible, as we always say, raise your hand. We'd like you to have a copy of the Bible in front of you so that you can look on as I preach. And in the Bibles we're passing out, Romans 1 is on page 939. 939. A little bit of background on the book of Romans. It was a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. And one of his purposes for writing this letter was to explain to them why he believed God was calling him to go plant a church in Spain. And he was asking for their prayers, he was asking for their support, and so that's what the whole letter is about. It's, it's his theology, so they can see why he's going to go plant a church, and that he is the one who should go and plant this church, because of how biblical his views are, how Christ-centered his views are. And so, that's the point of the whole book. But he gives a summary of his reason for wanting to go plant this church in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. So look at what he says, Romans chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So notice the word also. Spain, but you also. I'm eager to preach the gospel. So let's start with this first question. How did Paul feel about sharing the gospel with other people? And it's right there in verse 15. Did you catch it? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's eager. Now, to get in touch with this word eager, I want you to think in your mind, what are some things that you are eager to do? Okay, you might be eager to watch Downton Abbey. Is that tonight, right? You might be eager to uh, like make your morning coffee tomorrow morning. Okay, you might be eager to go to the beach at Carmel. Okay, these are things you're eager to do, which means... What, you're excited about them? You're looking forward to doing them? You can't wait to do them? You want to do them? That's what eagerness means. And Paul was eager about sharing the gospel with other people. Which means he looked forward to sharing the gospel with other people. He was excited about sharing the gospel with other people. He couldn't wait to share the gospel with other people. Paul was eager. How do you feel about sharing the gospel with other people? 
Do you feel eager? Would that be on your list of things you are eager to do? Downton Abbey, Carmel, coffee, sharing the gospel. Would that be on your list of things you're eager to do? Or is there also fear, as somebody prayed about earlier this morning? Is there maybe just a sense of duty or obligation? You're supposed to do this. You know, what, what, what is in your heart about sharing the gospel with other people? I would guess all of us, if we're honest, we'd say that there is eagerness, but we need more. I'd like more eagerness. We need more eagerness. So let's ask Paul, why, Paul? Why were you so eager to share the gospel with other people? And he answers that in verses 14 and 15. Now notice the word so, S-O, at the beginning of verse 15. That shows that verse 15 is a conclusion from verse 14. So verse 14 gives the reason why he is eager to share the gospel with people in verse 15. So let's read verses 14 and 15 together so you can see how verse 14 is the reason and verse 15 is the conclusion. Verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, or therefore, or as a result of that, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? It's because he knows he's under obligation. Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish. Now, don't stumble over those words. Okay, the word barbarian, if you call somebody a barbarian in this culture, you'll get slugged, right? I mean, that's a bad word. It's an offensive word. Not so in the Greco-Roman culture. The word barbarian literally meant non-Greek speaker. That, That was the intended meaning. So he's saying, I'm eager to preach to those who speak Greek and those who don't speak Greek. That covers everybody, right? You're either speaking Greek or not. We're all barbarians in in, in that word, okay? And then he says, wise and foolish. If you call somebody foolish in our culture, that would be offensive. But not the case. The Greco-Roman word was broader. And in this case, it means not, not having been schooled. So those who are schooled and those who are not schooled, which covers everybody. So Paul's point is that he realizes that he has an obligation to everybody. Greeks, barbarians, Greeks, non-Greek speakers, schooled, non-schooled, Paul has an obligation to everybody. And because of this obligation, he is in debt and he feels eager. So this might be foreign to us. If you could get into Paul's mind, when, when Paul like saw his neighbor across the street, one of the things that would have been in his mind is, I am indebted to him. I owe him. That's what Paul would have felt. Or if he saw you know, a woman at, some random woman at the marketplace, one of the things in his mind would have been, I'm indebted to her. I owe her. Or as Paul thought about faraway Spain, where I don't, th- don't think he's ever been there, but he knew Spain was there, he felt, I'm indebted to them. I owe them. So Paul knew that he was under obligation. He owed them. So what kind of debt did Paul owe them? There's two very different kinds of debts. Let me tell you about the first one, which is not what Paul's talking about, and then hopefully that'll help us see the, the second one, which what is Paul is talking about. Two different kinds of debts. One is when someone gives you something, and so you are obligated to give them something back. Okay? For example, let's say that you wanted to buy a $10,000 HD TV with the sound system, the works, the whole thing, but you didn't have the money for it. And you hadn't gone to the Financial Peace University yet, so you, you hadn't been talked about credit cards, and so you go ahead and you, and you put $10,000 on your credit card. Now, the credit card company has just given you $10,000. You 
You get your stereo system, but you also get something else. A debt. An obligation. They've given you something. You owe them something back, right? He said, ah, no, it doesn't work that way. Take you out of prison or whatever. So they've given you something valuable. You need to give them something in return. That can't be the kind of obligation Paul's talking about here because the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, haven't all given Paul anything. It doesn't work that way. So there's, there's another kind of obligation, another kind of debt that Paul is talking about here. It's where, not where someone's given you something so you owe them something in return, but where you have received something of great value and somebody else desperately needs it. You've received something of great value, someone else needs it. Perfect illustration of this kind of debt is in the Bible in 2 Kings 7. You don't need to turn there, but look at it later. Let me just tell you the story. Here's what's going on. The king of Syria had surrounded the city of Samaria in order to starve them into submission. No food could get into Samaria. No water could get into Samaria. Starving them into submission. So week after week, month after month went by. They were depleting their food stores. People were starving. People were dying. There were bodies in the streets. It was a terrible, horrifying time. But one day Elijah, the prophet Elijah... God gave him a prophetic word. He said, tomorrow at this time, we will have all the food we need. So what happened? Later that day, four lepers were talking together who were in Samaria, and they said, listen, if we stay here, we're all going to starve to death. Let's sneak out of the city and, and go over to the Syrian camp. I mean, they might kill us, but there's a chance that they would have mercy on us. Maybe they would enslave us. At least we would live and we get food. Okay, we're in. We're in. And so that night they sneak out of Samaria and sneak into the Syrian camp. And when they get there, they find that the place is absolutely deserted. God had caused a noise to come that sounded like massive chariot armies thundering towards the Syrian army headquarters. And so they all thought Samaria has hired a, a thundering you know, chariot army, we're out of here. And so they just, they ran and left everything behind. And so imagine if you're one of these lepers, you walk into the, the, the Syrian army headquarters and there is meat sizzling on the barbecues and there are pots of boiling, bubbling lentil stew and there's stacks of bread, you know, naan like they eat in the Middle East, which is just so good. Got to come to Abu Dhabi and check it out. Okay, there's dates, there's raisins, there's honey. And they're just like, feast time. And that's exactly what they did. They just started eating. I mean, barbecue and bread and stew and raisins and dates and honey and just... But then one of them says, wait a minute. It's not right if we just stay here and eat all this food ourselves. We have an obligation to tell our brothers and sisters back in Samaria what we have. And can you feel that? They've just received something of great value, which others desperately need. And so with that reception of what others desperately need comes an, an obligation, a debt. Those four lepers now owe the Samaritan people something. And now, how would those lepers have felt going back to Samaria to tell their brothers and sisters? You think they would have been eager to tell them? You think they might have run to tell them? See, when you have something of great value that others desperately need, you're eager to tell them about it. That's what happens with this kind of debt 
$10,000 for the TV thing, not so much. But this one, where you've received something of great value, you are eager, you are excited, you can't wait to get that debt paid off. That's the kind of debt Paul's talking about in Romans 1. Let me give you another illustration, just to see if shine a little different light on it. Let's say, tragically, that tomorrow you notice that your eyesight is not quite as clear as it used to be. And the next day, even even less clear, fuzzy, it's, you can't, and the next day it's worse. And so you go to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor runs tests and says, I'm so sorry, but you have macular degeneration. Um, you're you're going to lose your eyesight. Whew. And so you're, you, know, you can't really see your wife as clearly anymore, and you're having a hard time doing the things that you do. You can't, can't drive. And you, you join a support group of other people with macular degeneration. And so you're there to support each other. But every time you go to the meetings, you're hearing stories of eyesight getting worse, and you're sharing your stories of eyesight getting worse. And it's very difficult. But then one night, you're kind of t- you know, tootling around on the Internet, and, and you run a search, and you, you find this website that makes this amazing claim about being able to cure macular degeneration. And you're skeptical. But it's so cheap, and you think, well, you know, what can I lose? So you, you order it, it comes, and you start taking this medicine, and all of a sudden... You can see again. You can see perfectly clear. You can even see better than you used to see. Okay, you can see. Now, so you've just received something of great value, which your support group desperately needs. You now have an obligation. You now have a debt. You owe them. But how would you feel about going to that next support meeting? Eager. You'd be eager. You might even call them before the next support meeting and tell them the good news. So this is a very different kind of debt than the kind of debt we're used to talking about. But it's where you have received something of such value that someone else so desperately needs that you owe them. You have an obligation to them. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses 14 and 15. That's the kind of debt Paul's talking about. He knows, Paul knows, that in Jesus Christ... He has received such infinite value, such overwhelming value, so much in Jesus Christ, and that those who don't have Christ desperately need Christ. That he's eager to tell them all that he has in Christ, they desperately need Christ, he's eager to tell them. And that's the kind of debt Paul's talking about. So how about us? Like I said, I think if we're honest, we are eager If you're a follower of Jesus, you are eager. That's in there, but not as eager as maybe Paul was and as as maybe we should be. Okay, Fear can drown out our eagerness. Uh, Feeling inadequate can drown out our eagerness. But if the eagerness would rise up, then they would overcome the, the fear and the sense of inadequacy. So let's ask this last question. How can we grow in our eagerness? Okay, If we're not feeling the eagerness that Paul was feeling, what's the problem? What can we do? And the answer is in verses 14 and 15. If we're not feeling the eagerness of verse 15, the problem is that we're not seeing the obligation of verse 14. Okay, Because of that word so there between verses 14 and 15. If we're not feeling the eagerness of verse 15, the problem is that we're not feeling the obligation, the kind of obligation that's there in verse 14. We're not seeing clearly enough that we've received in Christ something of such great value that other people who don't have Christ desperately need. We're not seeing that clearly enough. Because if we see that more clearly, the eagerness will rise. 
So how do we grow in our eagerness then? Not just by me saying, be more eager, church. Not just by trying to be more eager, not just by kind of gritting our teeth, okay, I'll try to be more eager, but by taking time to stop and prayerfully think about what we have in Jesus Christ. Reflect on what do we have in Jesus Christ and reflect on how others desperately need him and how blessed they would be to receive Christ, to have Jesus Christ. That's the way that we can grow in our eagerness. So let's think about all that we have in Christ. I want to share with you everything, but I'll share with you 10 high points that I thought of, okay? 10, 10 high points. All we have in Christ and how desperately everyone needs him. First of all, Jesus Christ is fully God. The man who walked in Galilee 2,000 years ago wasn't just a good teacher, wasn't just a nice man, wasn't just a humble, you know, pilgrim preacher kind of dude, okay? He was God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, fully God. And one of the reasons he came was so that we could see God with our own eyes, have God show up in history, so that we could see who God is, how real he is, and what he's like. And so when, when Jesus taught, this is God teaching, truth, Shedding light on the universe. Here's why we're here. Here's who we are. Here's what the problem is. Here's who God is. Here's what he's done to save us and help us. So when Jesus taught, it's God speaking. When Jesus healed, we see God's power. He commands blind eyes to open, and the blind eyes open. God's power. So we're seeing God's real, God's power. We're seeing God's love and compassion, how he forgave sins. He cared for little children. He had mercy and compassion on sinful people like you and me. And so Jesus is fully God. And so those who don't have Jesus have no certain truth about God. It's just a fog. It's just a mystery. It's just, well, this, this opinion, that opinion, that opinion, that opinion. But when you have Jesus, you receive certain truth about God because he came. He was here in history. And so... We owe them because they don't have certain knowledge about God. But when we tell them about Jesus, God in the flesh, and they receive Jesus into their lives, they will have certain knowledge about who God is, what the universe is all about, what's going on here. You owe them. That's the first one. Jesus Christ, fully God. Second, Jesus Christ is fully man which the author of Hebrews says means he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he's been tempted just as we are tempted except without sin. So Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, when you're tempted, when you're struggling, when you're weak, he sympathizes with you. He was here. He knows And so when you turn to him and say, help me, he sympathizes and he responds and his heart is tender towards you. His heart is compassionate towards you. He says, I understand. I will help you. But see, we owe them because people who don't have Christ don't know that they can turn to God through Jesus Christ and that God will be sympathetic with them. They just see God as this harsh taskmaster judge type. And God has compassion for them because in Christ He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. So we owe them 
Because without us telling them, they won't know that they can turn and receive sympathy. But when we do tell them and they receive Jesus into their lives, they'll be able to turn to him again and again and again and he will be sympathetic and compassionate and caring towards them. I guess all of you who know Jesus have had times this last week where you've turned to him in weakness, in struggle, and he sympathizes with you. He says, I'm glad you came. I'm going to help you. I understand. Don't you love that? We owe them because we've received Jesus. Third, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Okay, we've all sinned against him. God's just, perfectly righteous and holy. We deserve judgment from God. Story doesn't stop there, though. God loves us. The Father loved us so much, he was willing to deliver his own son up to the sufferings of the cross because he loves you and you and you and you. He loves you. And Jesus loves you. Jesus said to the Father, I'll go. He knew what the cross entailed. He went. He could have turned back at any time. He could have called for a legion of angels to deliver him all through the cross. He chose every moment to suffer until he could say, it is finished. And so because Jesus died on the cross, when you receive him, this is beautiful, by faith alone, not because of how good you are, how spiritual you are, we come wrecks, moral wrecks, bankrupt moral wrecks, help me, I trust you, Jesus, and he forgives. All your past sins, that one, yes, that one too, forgiven. All your present sins, forgiven. All your future sins, forgiven by trusting Jesus Christ. We owe them. Because they're not forgiven yet. And they could be forgiven. They could have God smiling upon them, loving them, moving towards them with all of his blessing and goodness because of what Jesus did on the cross. We owe them. So tell them. Fourth, Jesus Christ lived a perfectly moral and sinless life. Now this is important because this side of heaven, none of us does. We all have remaining sin in us. I know I do. And you do. Because God's holy and just and righteous, he can't look upon any sin favorably. So then are we stuck? No. Jesus lived a perfectly morally righteous life. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're connected to him. And God clothes you with Jesus' perfect moral righteousness. So when you're looking to Jesus by faith, when God sees you, he sees Jesus' perfect moral righteousness covering you. Even if I lost my patience five minutes ago, especially if you lost your patience five minutes ago. You're looking to Jesus by faith. You're covered with his perfect moral righteousness. And God the Father delights in you for Jesus' sake. He loves you for Jesus' sake. He's rejoicing over you to do you good for Jesus' sake. By faith alone in Christ alone. Think about the person at your work who's not experiencing that, whose indwelling sin is, God can't respond favorably to sin. Think about your neighbor We owe them. We owe them. We owe them. You've received this. You're clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. No matter what's happened yesterday, you're looking to God saying, forgive me, help me. And he smiles because you're clothed. You're trusting Jesus. You're clothed with perfect moral righteousness. We owe them. Fifth, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit fills us with the very presence of God the Father and Jesus the Son. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means you'll have times in your life where you're so filled with God's presence that you need nothing else. You're filled, completely filled. But your neighbor who doesn't have Christ isn't filled 
Your friend who doesn't have Christ will never be filled apart from Christ. They're searching, they're looking, they're longing. They won't be filled. We owe them. We owe them. Because when they put their trust in Jesus Christ, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and they will have times where they are so filled with God's love and Jesus' presence that they're completely satisfied. We owe them. Sixth, Jesus frees us from fear. I've had fears about getting everything packed up, about what's going to happen in Abu Dhabi. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. When we turn to Jesus in our fears, every time if we turn and say, help me, he will show us his love for us. Remember, I love you. He'll show us his sovereign power over everything. Remember, I'm in control of all the stuff you got to pack. I'm in control of the moving dates. I'm in control of the moving people. I'm in control of, I'm in control of everything. I love you and I'm in control of everything. I love you in control of everything and I'm perfectly wise in the plan I have for you, for your future. Everything I ordain for your life is crafted to bring you even more joy in me. And when we turn to Jesus in our fears and we see his love, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his compassion for us, fears diminish and peace rises. When you can, no matter what fear you face, you can turn to Jesus Christ and he, Psalm 37 says, he delivers us from all our fears. You've experienced this, those of you who know Jesus. I've experienced this this week. Your friends don't experience that. They're left with their fears. Fears can be brutal. You know that. You felt them. We owe them. We owe them. They were not created to live in fear. They were created to live in God through Christ. We owe them. Let's tell them. Seventh, Jesus Christ comforts our sorrows. Like I said, I'm feeling sorrow this morning. God's given me grace to preach, but I'm thankful for that, but I'm feeling sorrow. But the beautiful thing is when we have sorrows, when our hearts are sad, our heart broken, we can turn to Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected, loving Jesus, and he will pour his love into our hearts so we're comforted. You have felt that, those of you who know Jesus. It doesn't necessarily take the sorrow away, but it's a mystery how it works, but it comforts, it comforts that sorrow, strengthens you in that sorrow, consoles you in that sorrow. Any sorrow those of you who love Jesus, any sorrow you will ever face, he promises he will comfort you in it. You will never face a sorrow for which you will not receive comfort because of who Jesus Christ is. But your friends don't have that. Your neighbors don't have that. We owe them. Because when you tell them about Jesus and they receive Jesus, from that point on, they will never face a sorrow without Jesus personally, really, heart-feelingly, Comforting them. Fifth, Jesus Christ changes our hearts. Remember my Zen Buddhist friend, when I was in real estate, we met together Thursdays over at the park here by the lake, and we'd read one chapter of John and one chapter of his Zen Buddhist book, talking, talking, talking. Remember one day he said, as much as I meditate, I just can't conquer my pride. I can't change my pride. And I said, Jesus can What's impossible with people is possible with God. Jesus Christ has broken the power of that sin and every sin that you will ever have. He's broken that power on the cross. If you trust him, your heart will be changed. Well, he didn't respond that day, and in the next few weeks, he didn't respond. Four or five years, we were down at Dunamas, having lunch, tapping my shoulder, and it was him. He'd left the real estate company. He was doing something else. He goes, you'll never believe, never believe what, I, what happened to me this morning. This was a Sunday after church. 
I said, what happened this morning? He goes, I got baptized. Jesus has freed me. You who know Jesus Christ, you know you can't change your own heart. You know you can't get over your own pride or your greed or your lust or your bitterness or whatever it is. But you've experienced coming before Jesus weak, poor, with nothing to bring to the table except your sins, saying, help me. And you've experienced his power changing your heart. Where did that greed go? My heart's now satisfied in you. Where did that pride go? I'm humbled by your mercy. He does that. But your friends don't have that. They're left battling their prides and greeds and lusts and frustrations and emptinesses. And we owe them. Because when they receive Jesus, they will experience his power freeing them. Not making them perfect overnight, right? We can all attest to that, but they will be progressively changed. And then finally, when glory comes in heaven, they'll be completely changed. Ninth, Jesus Christ guides our decisions. We face huge decisions in life. Frightening decisions. Decisions which have huge ramifications. But what if you could receive all the wisdom you needed for every decision that you need to make? You can in Christ. He promises. He will give you the wisdom that you need. He's perfectly wise. He has the wisdom you need. He will give it to you when you seek him. So you will always have all the wisdom you need for every decision you make in the future. Doesn't that just lift a burden off of you? He will always guide you. You face some big decisions. Not too big for him, though. But your friends don't. They're left like this or this, pros and cons. What should I do? This could be wrong. This could be wrong. We were never meant to live that way. We were meant to be guided by our God through Jesus, our Savior, and he will guide you. So we owe them. Because when you tell them about Jesus and they receive Jesus into their lives, they will always receive all the wisdom that they need for every decision that they need to make. One last one. Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead. He broke death's power by rising from the dead. He paid sin's penalty, so we don't need to fear God's judgment. So in Christ, by faith in Christ, we can look ahead to death with complete peace, free from fear. No judgment because Jesus received the judgment. No fear of death because he was raised from the dead. He'll raise me from the dead. And I don't even need to fear the process of dying because he'll give me grace for the process of dying. I can be free from fear of dying. And your friends don't have that. They fear dying. Deep down inside, they fear dying. But when they receive Jesus, when you tell them about Jesus, and they receive Jesus, that fear will be gone. Because they'll know they're forgiven. No fear of judgment. They'll be raised from the dead, just like Jesus was raised from the dead, and he will give them all the grace they need for the process of of dying. We owe them. You have received a great gift in Christ. You are there in the Syrian camp, feasting, feasting, feasting. Samaritans are starving, starving, starving. You owe them. This isn't right. Let's go. Eagerly. Eagerly. So that's why Jan and I are going to Abu Dhabi. And that's why I want to call you to see who Jesus Christ is. It's by seeing Jesus Christ more clearly, receiving Jesus Christ more deeply, that we will see all that we have and how desperately those around us need him. And then we'll be eager to share. So I want to call you, give the rest of your life 
to letting people who don't know Christ know about Christ. Start small, baby step, kind of our culture here at Mercy Hill Church. Ask the Father, who do you want me to love and serve and care for and share the gospel with? He will tell you. He will always answer that prayer. Ask him, and then, Lord, what steps do you want me to take? He will give you those steps. I want to call you for the rest of your life. Always be asking God that step, that question, and always be taking those steps. We have received Jesus Christ, who is of infinite value. They desperately need him. We owe them. Let's tell them. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that today you would work in our hearts so that from here on in, we are giving our lives because of you, in you, for you, to telling people about who you are. As we see you increase our eagerness, overcome our fears, overcome our sense of inadequacy, and give us your holy boldness and eagerness like Paul had. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.